Hello, Patrick. Hi, Ruth. <laughs> I have a question for you. Okay, shoot. Do you remember the last drink that you had out? The last drink that I had out? Um, I think it actually might have been with you. I think it might have been after a day of reporting in St. Mary's County for what was going to be our actual season two of Dish City. Aww, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. R.I.P. reporting in person. R.I.P. going to places. Uh. Things, places. So knowing what you know about how the world is now, how would you have spent that last week in March? If I knew that we were headed into like apocalypse mode, I think I would have spent a night at 18th Street Lounge. Yeah, definitely ESL for sure. So to be honest, Ruth, I have heard of 18th Street Lounge, but I have never been there. Ever. Oof. Really? Well, it's a nightclub and music venue hidden in a historic mansion on 18th Street. It's halfway between DuPont Circle and Farragut Square, and it's been around since the 90s, so it's a D.C. institution. You know how in uh, the Harry Potter universe they fit like these intricately designed spaces and what looks like a very boring exterior to like protect it from the muggles? <laughs> Yes, I totally understand. <laughs> That's what ESL is like. On the outside, you know, you don't have a fancy door. There's like, there's barely any signage that points to what's inside. And on the inside, ESL just doesn't look like any other club in D.C. The outside doesn't look like a mansion, but it's furnished like one. You've got these like velvet armchairs, these kind of dirty chandeliers and gilded mirrors. And it's kind of got this Baroque bohemian vibe. Like many places, 18th Street Lounge, or ESL, as many called it, closed for business on Sunday, March 15th. And 99 days later, we were still living under the effects of this pandemic when I saw a story pop up on Facebook that I never thought I would see. ESL was closing permanently. Hmm. Why did this place mean so much to you? Um, I wasn't a regular at ESL, but it was one of the first places I went to when I moved to D.C. in 2013. Um, I have some very specific memories there. It also really had a character that felt very unique. You know, we've lost a number of places permanently to this pandemic. And when we first all went into kind of quarantine mode, I knew this was possible at the beginning of all of this. But the reality of that didn't really hit home until a place that I loved was affected. Today on the show, a farewell to 18th Street Lounge. What does the story of one D.C. nightclub tell us about how local nightlife has changed? Okay, Patrick, I think in order to explain to you what ESL meant to the city, I've got to go all the way back to the 90s when it opened. Okay, let's go. 18th Street Lounge was started by a bunch of young DJs out of college, Fareed Nouri and Eric Hilton. And these two hosted warehouse parties in DC's underground music scene. They were just looking for a place to play house and electronic music. Huh. Here's Fareed. Took me about a couple of years, you know, driving around uh, late nights, early mornings, looking for spaces, looking for, for lease signs, and then calling the landlords or, or their office. 
the early 90s recession left a lot of boarded up storefronts. So there were opportunities for business, but still, Fareed had a really hard time finding a space. He had never owned a business and landlords were not calling him back. Fareed and Eric actually got really close to signing onto a basement space, but when that fell through, they got a tip about a property at 1212 18th Street. And suddenly they were looking at a three-story historic mansion. We were pretty shocked of how amazing the this, this space was. French windows and all the original moldings and high ceilings, you know, a great vibe in the interiors. So we, we weren't expecting to get a space of that caliber. It was too good to pass up, so they signed a lease. It was going to take a fair amount of work to refurbish, though, so they recruited a few friends. We did a lot of the uh, demolition ourselves, uh, which wasn't the best idea because the building had, had asbestos. <laughs> <laughs> what they wanted a basement and then they ended up with a three-story building those are two totally different like strategies for running a club like, they had this idea for what they wanted to do and then, then when they saw a bigger space they just like expanded their dream to fit that space did they think that there was like the the market in dc for a club for like djs to play did they think that DC could support that. Maybe I'll just let Fareed expand on this point. It wasn't much creativity in, in, in the hospitality world. Restaurant-wise, you know, there was your average, you know, steakhouse, and then you have the cheap eats, ethnic foods, and then, you know, bar-wise, you either had college bars or, like, super expensive nightclubs, right? My main goal was to establish a nightclub where uh, this kind of music or, or the kind of energy that's uh, really popular in other major metropolitan areas in the world or in the country uh, can have an outlet here. Okay, so keep in mind this is the late 80s, early 90s, and the kind of music Fareed and his co-founder Eric were obsessed with was the kind that was played at warehouse parties. We're talking about the rise of electronic dance music, techno out of Germany and Detroit, house music out of Chicago, golden age hip-hop from the West Coast that was fused with jazz. Fareed wanted music to be something like a great equalizer for different groups of people in D.C. at the time. This idea is kind of familiar, I think, to you and me because people say the same thing about food, like, oh, everybody has to eat. Food is a great equalizer. And we both kind of know that when you apply these things to food or to music, that it can start to feel kind of cliche, right? Like anybody who's been to a music festival knows that this concept can be stretched to the point of parody. Like I have been to Bonnaroo. I get it. (laughs) But during the 90s, music really was, I think you can make that argument for it being a physical destination. Like there was no Spotify, no Apple Music, no YouTube, like following the music itself really was the experience. I mean, there were times back in those years where you would only hear a specific record in just one club and, and you would have to go there on, on a specific night to hear that one record. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> when their mansion was finally ready and asbestos-free, Fareed, Eric, and their business partners, Yama Joani and Amano Yubi, opened on April 7th, 1995. The place was a whole mood. The best way to describe this is through the eyes of a regular. Here's Mark Adriano. Proudly to say, and maybe even embarrassing to say, I would go to ESL five days a week, uh, Wednesday through Sunday. Mark grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and he's been going to 18th Street Lounge for, get this, 20 years. Like nearly, he's not an old guy. It's like nearly all his adult life. And to give you a sense of how much Mark depends on ESL, I asked him how he became a regular, and this is what he told me. Like, how does this become your spot? 
I think just by consistency, Ruth, honestly, it was like breathing air. It was like drinking water. It was like breathing <laughs> air. It was like drinking water. When Mark talks about 18th Street Lounge, he almost sounds like he's describing one of the great loves of his life. And like, don't get me wrong, I'm not making fun of the guy. I'm saying Mark adores 18th Street Lounge. ESL is unique from the 19 stairs you walk up to the first floor. For me, I would kind of like scamper upstairs because I was too excited, you know, all that adrenaline. So I would kind of like do a light jog upstairs, kind of like warming up. There's this musky kind of, you know, vibe, soft lighting, chandeliers, that 90 BPM beat you hear from the first floor uh, DJ booth. It kind of puts you in that mood. Your, your heart immediately starts feeling the, the beat of the music as you're walking the stairs. Once I got to that final step, you know, the first thing you would see would be this mirror in front of you. you know, so you kind of like check yourself out. I condition my body. Once I place both feet on the first floor after I climbed those 19 steps, it was game time. This is going to be a good night. I feel like it's not surprising at all that he like remembers the number of steps. I can't say that I fact-checked this, but if I'm going to believe anyone on the number of steps that you need to take to go up to 18th Street Lounge, I believe Mark. So when ESL opened, there was no hype on Instagram, there were no splashy outdoor signs, and in fact, there were no signs at all. I came up with the idea of not having a sign or just having like a plaque on the side where you don't see it unless you look for it. Mainly the idea was... The ones who know, know, and the ones who don't know will find out. <laughs> it was a way to cater to the right people, you know, to the people who can appreciate what we do. I am not the right people. <laughs> ESL regular Mark was clearly one of those people. Either you get it or you didn't get it. And if you didn't get it, I wasn't going to teach you. <laughs> so, Patrick, you just don't get it. Yep. But people from all parts of the world who found themselves in D.C. went there. ESL was just this huge destination for people who didn't just want to go out, but wanted to explore the underground music scene. It sounds like it was a really hip place. (laughs) I think you could easily kind of take that and twist it a little bit and be like, it's a hipster place. Like, it's cool, but it's like a little too cool. Yeah, I'm definitely not cool enough for this place. So I have this theory that ESL has this reputation because of its association with Thievery Corporation. Go on. Eric Hilton, Fareed's business partner, he's a founding member of Thievery Corporation. So if you're our age and you grew up in the suburbs, you probably first encountered Thievery Corporation on the soundtrack of Garden State. Guilty as charged, am I right? (laughs) All right, well, here's their connection to 18th Street Lounge. After Farid and Eric opened up ESL and the place became a playground for local DJs and bands, they also opened up a studio and record label in one of ESL's back rooms. And that's where Thievery Corporation was founded. Huh. Yeah, so Thievery Corporation started as this, like, D.C. underground electronic music group, but they didn't really court the local crowd. Their music was global, borrowing from jazz, reggae, and Middle Eastern and Indian influences. And as Thievery Corporation's influence grew outside of D.C., so did ESL's. And I need you to hear this from someone who knew Thievery Corporation outside the context of the Garden State soundtrack. 
My name is Neil Becton. I'm the owner of Some Records on 14th Street, and I DJ as well. To give you a sense of how aloof ESL was locally, but how well known it was globally, you kind of have to hear about how Neil first heard about ESL. There was a magazine called Straight No Chaser out of England that um, if you were buying certain kind of music, dance music in the late 90s, they were like the hip magazine, and they would always have DJ playlists there was one section of the magazine that would have worldwide DJs and what they were, what their top ten was, and they would always include pretty much somebody from ESL, like DC. So you'd see, like you know, Eric Hilton. Here's his top ten. They're like, oh man, like. It's funny that like a international music magazine covered ESL before like the local paper did. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, pretty much. Sometimes it takes other people to appreciate, you know, to, for you to look at your own scene and go, wow, I guess we do have something pretty cool here. So you've got a club that is trying to be underground, but at the same time, you've got a co-owner and a bunch of musical acts that are global and just like blowing up in other cities. That's kind of gives you a sense of the platform that they had elsewhere. It is global. (laughs) During this time, Neil was actually working at the Washington Post. And the first time he went to ESL, he was there for work. I actually wrote the very first review of the 18th Street Lounge for the Washington Post website back in the day. When Washington Post launched their website, they had no content at all. So like, oh, we need restaurant reviews. We need, you know, what do we, we need to fill up this website. So they, I was working on one of the news desks and they're like, they were paying us to do reviews of restaurants, bars. So I reviewed, I don't know, seven or eight places for them. And I ended up doing 18th Street Lounge, um, which at the time was like really exclusive and really hard to get into. And I remember the first time I went, I was wearing flip-flops or something, and I got turned away at the door, and I was like, oh, God. And I knew I knew Fareed, I knew Eric, I knew those guys, but I obviously didn't dress right, so I got turned away. Ooh, a dress code. Yes, it was notoriously strict and arbitrarily enforced, which is exactly what you want in a dress code. Right. <laughs> Here's ESL owner Fareed. Our dress code kind of varied, but, you know, generally stayed to... No athletic wear uh, or shorts. No athletic wear meaning, you know, no like logo shirts. So no team shirts or hats with logos. No branding. Flip-flops, we we had a thing against that. (laughs) What's wrong with flip-flops? So many things, Patrick. So many (laughs) things. There's like tens of thousands of Washingtonians who like would not be able to go to ESL under this policy. (laughs) Okay, I asked read about this and he says the dress code was mostly a reflection of what people expected of a nightclub during that era in the mid you know 90s to early 2000s people actually did dress up to go out like really dress up you know cologne gel the whole works so <laughs> horse-old shoes pants Regardless of how normal Fareed says this dress code was at the time, it didn't always play super well with locals, and ESL developed a bit of a reputation. The city paper used to always give them a hard time about their door policy. They were an unmarked door, and the doorman, you know, you never know what the cover charge is going to be, you know, and, you know, if you're a woman wearing flip-flops, you're going to get in, but if you're a guy wearing flip-flops, you're not going to get in. I mean, I, I think I did accuse him a little bit of being a little too uh, too cool for school at first. Like, kind of like, come on, guy. You know, I, I understand kind of having a dress code. I, I get it. Well, I mean, if you if you got a really nice space and you get, you're trying to create this vibe, you don't want a bunch of bunch of bros and flip flops and like 
cargo shorts kind of taking over your kind of killing the vibe. Was that you? Were you killing the vibe? I, I didn't think I was, but uh, maybe Dorman might have thought otherwise. <laughs> so, so far, does ESL sound like the kind of spot you would have wanted to go to? No. <laughs> this is, does not sound like my scene at all. <laughs> In a word, no. But sell it to me, Ruth. Sell me. Give it some time. <laughs> okay. After the break, I will continue to make my case. As you can tell from our episode, 18th Street Lounge was all about the music, so much so that we put together a playlist of music inspired by ESL. On it, you'll hear jazz music, reggae, and of course, house. It's on Spotify, and you can find a link in our show notes. Enjoy! Okay, where have we left off? Okay, so we were trying to, like, figure out how cool... This whole dress code thing was, is this club too cool for school? One thing I think I need to say, and I don't know if this will matter, but I think I think a lot of people think of ESL as a bar. I mean, it had a happy hour, but once you have live performances and parties, you are a club. And I think people think ESL was really snobby because they're comparing it to bars. But for a club, ESL really wasn't as exclusive and high end as other spots. Yeah, I think I... I'm just in general more of like a a fan of bars as opposed to clubs. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bar person too. And I think as DC's nightclub scene grew and shifted during the first decade of the 2000s, ESL had to start accommodating more bar people as opposed to just being a nightclub. Neil, the owner of Soam Records, who got turned away from the door for wearing flip-flops, he started to see ESL go from being the most exclusive door in town to being a little bit more welcoming. Yeah, at the beginning it was a fancy house party, and then it kind of evolved into a less fancy, but still a house party, yes. In 2007, Fareed took over majority ownership at ESL. For the past 12 years, he had been the owner with the boots on the ground, so to speak. That first decade of the new millennium brought a lot of changes to D.C. There was the Obama presidency, this new wave of tourism, and the redevelopment of areas like U Street, H Street, and 14th Street. So at this point, DuPont Circle and Adams Morgan weren't the only nightlife hubs anymore. ESL didn't have to be as tight at the door as they were before. That didn't really change the soul of the place, though. Fareed's taste in music was still the same, and the place was still great for live shows and experiences. For six nights a week, they basically had a foolproof live music lineup. There was tango dancing on Tuesdays, a live reggae band on Wednesdays, salsa on Thursdays, live jazz on Fridays and Saturdays, and house music on Sundays. Because this is a mansion, you might have had one band performing live in one room on one night, and then because there were all these other rooms, there were other DJs and, you know, styles of music that were played in other spaces throughout the house. So this was great, not just for music fans who went to ESL, but for live performers, too. You know, you have to get inspiration from somewhere, right? I want to introduce you to Flex Matthews. He's a rapper with the reggae band CI, and he performed with them at ESL every Wednesday. There's this app called Shazam that helps you find music. For me, as an artist, as a, as a person who writes music, it's, it's literally changed the way I write music, the way I listen to music. But um, I used to have Shazam like in this weird place on my phone. I would always lose it, couldn't find it. When I started going to ESL on a consistent basis, 
I put Shazam right on the front screen <laughs> of my phone because there was always so much good music being played. That's like, I, what is this? I need, I need this in my collection. I need to find an instrument. I need to find a song. Flex came to know 18th Street Lounge as more than just a place to perform. And here's the thing, I don't even drink. I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke cigarettes, I don't smoke weed, but I would go there just for the music, even when I wasn't performing. When you think of DC's music venues, there are these big names, right? There's the 930 Club, the Black Cat, the Anthem now. Those places book a lot of big touring acts, but to really grow a local music scene, you need places that will book local bands and book them more than once. You need a place like ESL, which will sharpen good performers into great ones. Flex's band CI, back in the day, they toured with Thievery Corporation, and that's how a lot of people first got introduced to them. But they also had a Wednesday night residency at ESL that lasted for the past 14 years. So even though they've had fans in other countries, they were really able to invest in the local music scene here, in part because of ESL. And they were able to learn and grow as performers. When I came to ESL, I was a rapper. Like, just, I was a rapper. I was an MC. I was a rapper. When I left ESL, I was a rapper and an entertainer. I was a performer. A lot of rappers keep their feet planted on the ground. <laughs> but with the, with the electricity of the band, it just taught me how to be more adaptable. You know, um, I learned how to jump up and down on stage and rap at the same time and keep my breath. Again, this is just one room in this mansion on one night of the week. The magic of ESL is that each room on a particular night was a whole world unto itself. Of all those rooms and all those nights, there's one that really sticks out to me and a ton of regulars that I talk to. The Underground Soul Solution Party on Sunday nights where DJ Sam the Man Burns would tear up the place with house music. guy called the dance church <laughs> and I joke that Sam was my pastor. <laughs> my my church starts at 11 p.m. not 11 a.m. on Sunday. <laughs> Beandria July is a writer who now lives in Los Angeles but she lived in D.C. from 2010 to 2017. The first apartment I lived in my roommate introduced me to 18th Street Lounge um and she was actually kind of a train wreck as a roommate, but that was, when I look back on it, I was like, that was a real gift she gave me because that was the first place when I first moved to D.C. where I started to feel, like, at home. Her roommate mustn't have been too terrible if she were so lucky to have given her this gift. You know, I don't know. Like, some people have great taste, but they're trash people. So I'm going to give Beatrice <laughs> the benefit of a doubt on this one. <laughs> It was hot as hell. I remember that. It's really hot in there in the summer, like brutally hot and smelly. Um, and you're talking about DC in particular, not just ESL. No, inside oh. ESL in that room because there's so many people. And I mean, it's not, you know, like it doesn't smell like a sewage dump or anything, but it's like you can smell bodies in motion. Um, <laughs> Sweating, dripping, um, you know, some people bring a second shirt uh, to change oh, into because wow. they sweat through the first one. Okay. Yeah, so I learned to just start wearing black. <laughs> <laughs> I just wore black every time. Face it, I 
what would happen is on non-federal holiday nights, like when the regulars were there, you would always see like some DC professional who just came to ESL to drink, like stumble into the gold room and like just go from like standing around being like, hey, this is cool, you know, to like having their blazer off and like, you know, losing their mind like they were drunk at a wedding or something. <laughs> <laughs> People think that house music can be stripped down to like one beat. Do the beat, Patrick. You know what I'm talking about. I know that there are a whole bunch of different types. It's not a trick question. Just do your like, you know. Yes. You know, it's obviously house music is more than that. But, you know, that's what people think of when they think of house music. If you're not a house head, you don't realize that that beat or any beat is really what threads all this other stuff together. Like there's soul, gospel, disco, all woven through house music. Biondria says that she was a fan of house music before she started going to ESL, but attending dance church on Sundays was like getting a formal music education. And like she said, she really thought of it as a spiritual experience. You get to fellowship with people and it's not about like, you know, trying to get something from them. Or it's just It's just about like people connecting in a community. And I really, outside of church, I don't really know any other place to get that except the, except the club. And there's really like a very thin line between, you know, the spirit you feel at the altar and the spirit you feel on the dance floor for me. Um, and there were times where I would go in with a heavy heart and just leave transformed or... I would see someone dance and it would just move me so powerfully. Like it felt like, you know, it healed some part of me, <laughs> which I know sounds like, you know, very woo woo, but it, it, that was really my experience. I think when people talk about things and compare them to like religious experiences, it's really easy to kind of like brush that off as them being hyperbolic. But the way she's describing it, she's even using some of the words, like the same vocabulary that people use when talking about their faith. Like she talks about like feeling fellowship with other people. So I think that kind of like makes me feel less willing to just kind of be like, oh, you're exaggerating. I would imagine that if you think that it's a hyperbolic comparison, like you probably don't really have like a lengthy background going to church. True. Um, so, like, I, I grew up in the church. Beandria grew up in the church. Mm. She went to AME churches growing up. And she she's not just saying, like, I felt a divine presence on the floor. She's saying, no, like, people came together. They were yeah. in community. They were experiencing the same thing at once and kind of looking to the DJ for their, for their cues. And they were, you know, feeding off of that energy. And if you go to church regularly or if you have a spiritual community of sorts, then you kind of know what she's talking about. Yeah. And she very specifically brought up her experiences with AME churches and black churches in particular with what it was like to go to these house parties on Sundays. I lived on Capitol Hill and DC has undergone so much gentrification that it really felt like the gentrification wars were being fought on the dance floor, literally, because um, a lot of the regulars who come would be native Washingtonians or people who had lived in D.C. for a long, long time and were, like, not just passing through like so many are in the city um, or in the district. And, um, yeah, so it was kind of like, for me, it was, like, specifically a place to be around black people. 
So there weren't only Black people at dance church or at ESL on a given night, but cultivating that weekly dance party as a Black space was largely because of DJ Sam the Man Burns. He was the center of it all. He was the pastor of this dance Mm. congregation. Sam was old D.C. You know, like, that's the way people would talk about D.C. um, when I was there is, like, gentrification was happening at lightning speed. And so, like, neighborhoods that have been completely, like, Black centers of culture and gathering were becoming no longer that increasingly. And um, so it felt like when you went in there, it was old D.C., like, where this is a Black, this is Chocolate City. (laughs) So the regulars I talked to from ESL are all natives to the Washington region or people who have made D.C. home for decades. They've seen D.C., its neighborhoods, and its nightlife grow and change. I asked Flex, the rapper of the reggae band CI, about this. He grew up locally. It's weird. It's um, it's less fun, but, but safer, if that makes sense. U Street back in the, na- in, in like, 98, 99 felt like a, a street fair, you know, it's just a lot was going on. Now it's safer, but everything else is pretty much run of the mill. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to one club, you've been to all of them. So not all this change has been bad. Some change has led to greater integration of different communities. Here's Flex again. Growing up, it's like very different when you're like, when you're like living in like DC and surrounding areas, you're a teenager. And DuPont Circle gets this stigma. When you're young, it was like, yo, that's the gay side. You don't go there. And be like, all right, where is the gay side? You don't go there. But then as you get older and you become a man, you be like, nah, man, that's a lot of cool stuff going over here, bro. What are you talking about? <laughs> when I asked Beandria about queer acceptance at dance church, here's what she had to say. Oh, yeah, it was a family affair. So, like, you know, queer, straight. There was definitely, like, femme queens there. There'd be, like, voguing battles. And that was actually one of my favorite things is like you'd see the guys from urban artistry who were like, you know, looking, you know, straight up cis hetero males. But like they would step into the ring and do voguing with, you know, femme queens of the highest order, like and just like not worry about it. Like it was no no thing, you know, it was just like, okay, we're doing voguing now. So it was it sounds like it was just this place for like every type of person. Yeah, even though ESL started as a pretty exclusive place, ESL's owner, Fareed, says that this inclusion that you could meet anyone at ESL was built into the place from the start. Again, this whole idea of music being a unifier, like, yes, it has its limits. But the history of house music is one of inclusion. You look into the history of house, I mean, Frankie Knuckles, you know, it was black gay men who pioneered house who took refuge in the club when they were shunned in other places. Um, And for them, a lot of times the club is where people went to find themselves. Part of ESL's story has a really sad moment, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic. DJ Sam the Man Burns died unexpectedly this year, on Saturday, March 7th, 2020. He was scheduled to headline a show at Flash that night, not to mention keep spinning at Dance Church the next day. That Sunday, his dance church regulars gathered at ESL anyway, and they danced together as a way of grieving his loss. The final song of that night was Last Dance by Donna Summer.
That was the last Sunday that ESL would ever host its legendary house music party. By the next Sunday, the club closed due to pandemic restrictions. And 99 days later, it closed permanently on June 22nd, 2020, after 25 years in the district. So this, this space is pretty much vacant now. Uh, we we kind of broke down all the bars, back bars and bar tops. We took out uh, all the light fixtures. Obviously, all the furniture is gone, artwork, audio video system is down. Everything is prime white. So it's like a, a vacant space. Uh, anything that was ESL related is gone. ESL did good business south of DuPont Circle, but by the 2010s, it wasn't the only nightclub in town. It had competitors in many other neighborhoods that were closer to where people actually lived. By the time ESL's lease was up for renewal this summer, their rent was 400% what it was 25 years ago. Wow. Given the growth that DC and ESL saw in the last 25 years, this rent increase wasn't like unexpected or unfair necessarily, but it wasn't sustainable during a pandemic when nightclubs in particular aren't able to reopen. Fareed applied and received local grants and PPE loans, but it wasn't nearly what he needed to pay his landlord. The only grace he was given was permission to defer payments, which would have only set him back with more debt. And although Fareed's landlord wasn't going to raise the rent this summer like they normally would have, it was still way too high considering ESL wasn't likely to see any business until like 2021 at the earliest. Right. You can't, can't really blame him for making that decision. Yeah. The news, though, was really gutting to longtime regulars. 2020 is, is the year of reminding you that nothing is forever. You know, um, even though I have an affinity for that place and I love that place, you know, and I love everybody who owned it and run it as an artist and as an artist, you recognize that you're a contractor. And for regulars like Mark, you know, he's been going to ESL for the past 20 years. It's been such a stable part of his life. He's built his understanding of how he can exist in the world with the idea that ESL will always be there for him. And now that it's not, he has to find some other way to ground himself. If I had a bad day at work or I was going through something personally, I would always know that when I exit that place, I'd feel a lot differently. I felt cleansed. I felt um, balanced. I felt I was released. If you take that away, it definitely weighed heavy on me on a daily basis. I had to put that energy towards something else. So I'd have to find some sort of way of meditating by going to, you know, a park or uh, a local inlet beach, a place like that, and just reflect or meditate. I needed to replicate that feeling again. For Biondria, ESL made DC home, and now one of her ties to the district is gone. You know, DC, it's very isolating, I found, because um, I didn't work in the government, and so um, it took me a while to find my people there, and um, ESL was definitely, like, gave me the, during those times when, like, I didn't have a person to go call up in town to go do something, um, you know, I knew I could go there and feel like I wasn't alone. It's so painful to hear about places that we love closing because I feel like if it weren't for this pandemic, there's, like, no way that these places would be closed right now. Like it didn't, it didn't have to happen. 
But I think that we have to be grateful that a place like ESL was alive in the district for 25 years at all. That means something in a town like D.C. where now it's so hard for a business to secure a lease and to stay long enough to be in people's lives long term. The thing that made ESL great was its community of lost souls. And this is like a term that I heard multiple regulars mention. ESL is gone now, but its regulars are trying to find comfort in new ways. I don't even feel like going out anymore, you know. But I do because I started hanging out with the lost souls like myself who were former patrons of ESL. There's about seven of us. We hang out every weekend. And in the past month and a half, it's been in Clarendon, you know, downtown. It's like a running joke. We're going to go to ESL tonight, you know. But we all know that's not going to happen. I have been actually clubbing a bit on Twitch. Amazing. <laughs> and you get, Twitch is great because you get, you follow people and you get notifications when they go live. So it's just like at any moment, you know, some there could be a party and you just jump into it. The honest truth is it it will never be the same. Um, like it's it's over. It won't ever be like it was. It almost is like coming across like a death in the family. Yeah, and I think given the way the shutdowns happened so suddenly, there was really no closure. Everyone thought this was going to be temporary, and then this turned out to last a lot longer than any of us anticipated. And then for some of us, that loss is permanent. Obviously, places aren't as important as people and the health and safety of everyone right now. Um, and everything is temporary. We know that. But but there are certain places, whether they're restaurants or bars or clubs, where you can really feel wholly yourself. And when those places go away, it feels like a part of us has left, too. Yeah, you can have like a, a reverence for places and restaurants or like certain types of food. Yeah, I mean, like Flex says, nothing is forever, but I think it's really important to hold space for our grief and to mourn these losses and acknowledge that they really mean something to us. The one person who isn't depressed about all of this is Fareed. He's made peace with his decision and he's on to the next one. <laughs> venture TBD for now, but, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's going to be in D.C. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm already in, in the process of scouting some locations. Obviously, would like to time it, you know, post-pandemic, but it'd be challenging. But probably in the, in the next year and a half, I'd say, to start my next venture. So it's not a question of if, but when. Exactly. I love that he's just going for it. Yeah, I think he is now, you know, 25 years later, he's got that business experience. Um, so he's already scoping out spots and he wants to be in less dense neighborhoods than DuPont Circle and he wants to be closer to where people actually live. So, um, yeah, you know, it's on the horizon. Maybe you can convince me to go. See you on the dance floor, Patrick. <laughs> This episode of Dish City was produced by me, Ruth Tam. And me, Patrick Ford. Our managing producer is Ponzi Rutch. Steve Lack mixed this show. Mona Kashfi is WAMU's chief content officer and oversees everything we make here. Special thanks to Rita Burns, Candace Mills, and John Palaya. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and catch up on all of our past shows wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us what changes in D.C.'s food scene we should cover. You can find us at DishCity at WAMU.org, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at DishCity. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about me 
and how anxious I feel about eating at restaurants. See you then. <laughs>